Please be seated. I'd love to have, you're wondering why Judy's staying up there. Well, she hurt her back, and so she's going to stay there. So just so you know, we didn't have a fight or something. Just so you <laughs> so you're going, hey, something's changed. What's wrong here? Anyway. I love to have the last word, don't you? If there's one thing we all like, it's having the last word. The last word in an argument, a discussion, or a debate. Having the last word feels good. It makes us feel like we were right all along. Last words are very important, not just in the winning of an argument or a discussion, just last words in general. We study the last words of great historical figures. Last words are sometimes valued as the most important words of their entire life. Some people speaking last words on their deathbed have affirmed their faith, asked for forgiveness, confessed a crime, told where the buried treasure is, recanted heretical beliefs, or given a final blessing to their family. Last words many times have great significance. Well, when we study the life of Jesus, his teachings, his stories or parables, the events and miracles, his interaction with people, we discover who God is. God reveals to us who he is, how he works all through Jesus. And we've been spending a lot of time this year in the life of Jesus. It is God becoming human, easier to touch, easier to see, easier to understand, accessible to love. God with skin on. Well, Jesus spoke many words and did a lot of things. And John writes this. He says, if every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for all the books that would be written. Well, the most important time Jesus spent with his followers were his last 40 days on earth. And Jesus also had some last words spoken to his followers. Jesus' last words moved the disciples from following Jesus to taking the lead to follow others, lead others to follow him. He gave them a mission. And this mission is the beginning of the Christian movement, the birth of the church that we find recorded in the book of Acts. The last words of Jesus give us the why of the movement's beginning. It's the what Jesus told them to do. And so today we're going to look at the last words. The last words of Jesus. And I'd like you to turn with me, if you would, please, to Matthew 28. Matthew 28, it's on page 811 in the Bible in the rack in front of you. Matthew 28, the last chapter of Matthew, as we look at the last words of Jesus. Starting in verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. 
The followers of Jesus are on high ground. It's, they're in a mountain in Galilee. It feels good to be on top of the world with a guy that just came back from the dead. And Jesus told them, meet me there. And when Jesus saw them, they saw Jesus, they worshiped him, it says. Now, how many people have you worshiped lately? How many people? You Probably not very many. Or even in your lifetime. The question is, why did they worship him? Because they believed he was God. They believed he was God. Many had witnessed his death and his crucifixion. Now he was alive. For three years they had lived with him, seen him raise the dead, heal the sick, calm storms in an instant feed, four or 5,000 people with a single sack lunch, did all kinds of signs and wonders. He was killed and now he was alive. Pretty incredible. And no matter what other people believed, they worshiped Jesus because they knew he was God. But it says, some doubted. Some doubted. Wow, what's wrong with this picture? Well, there's nothing wrong with this picture. Frederick Bruner writes, the structure of the Christian faith is bipolar. Disciples live their lives between worship and doubt. Say, bipolar? You mean I'm, I'm bipolar? Spiritually speaking, we're all bipolar because we all wrestle with something called doubt. Christians believe and they doubt. Seekers or inquirers wrestle with belief versus doubt. We all live our lives between the spirit of worship and the spirit of doubt. Brunner says Christians are both believers and doubters. They're adoring and wondering. They're trusting and questioning. All disciples experience this bipolarity, and it's not healthy to deny it. And you say, these guys are right there. They saw everything, and they're still doubting? It's crazy, isn't it? Something about humanity that we still have doubt. Who here has not experienced doubt? You, you or someone you love contracted cancer. You lost a child, or your spouse cheated on you, or your marriage fell apart. You lost your job. The house fell through. You're still wrestling with depression. We are sidelined by doubt. And that means you are in good company. That's okay. These other 11 followers of Jesus had doubts too. And God uses worshiping, doubting disciples like you and me to do his work. We win our war without by obedience to God's commands, just as they did. These guys asked Jesus at one point, Lord, just increase our faith, would you? And, and he said, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, a little tiny seed, he said, you can tell this mountain to move and it will move. Faith of a mustard seed. Well, maybe that's kind of where we are today. But we can expect great things of ordinary faith. So what are Jesus' last words to these worshiping, doubting followers? He starts by saying, I am Jesus. I, Jesus, am in charge around here. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Now, that's quite a statement. Now, you don't think Jesus claimed to be God. The word authority in this usage, usage claims deity. Deity. This is a claim for absolute executive power, not only in heaven with God, but also on earth. In other words, he says, I am the CEO of the universe. Now, what gives someone authority? How do, how do we obtain authority? Someone gives it to us. Authority comes from outside 
of ourselves. Let me illustrate. The president of a company is hired by a board of directors, and then they give him authority to act. If you are president of the United States, the Constitution prescribes an election process that people vote, the Electoral College votes, and the president has elected. Does our president have authority from himself? Now, sometimes he thinks so, but he doesn't. He doesn't. The voters have given him the authority to go forward. The voters were given the authority to vote. The president receives the authority from outside of himself. How about a police officer? Is it his own authority? No. It's given to him by laws outside of himself. Other government, uh, government officials. The military has a chain of command, can only operate by granted authority, right? The granted authority. Well, Jesus was given authority by God, his Father. Matthew eleven twenty seven says this. Jesus said, all things have been committed to be by my Father. Speaking of Jesus in Ephesians 1, 20 through 22 says, that power is like the working of his mighty strength which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in any way. Anything missing there? No. Philippians 2.9 says, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus' authority was given to him by God the Father. And he says to the disciples, and he says to us today, I am in charge around here. I have all authority. I am the CEO of the universe. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. That's the starting point. That's where he starts. Then he says, so, because all that happened, because of all that authority, you move out and obey me. Move out and obey me. He says, I have all authority. I want you to obey me. Therefore, go and make disciples. He says, I'm in charge. Here's the deal. Here is your mission. He didn't say, this is your mission should you decide to accept it. This is not a Mission Impossible event, not an episode. This is real life. He says, here is your mission. Do it. This isn't an optional thing that we can kind of say, well, you know, I'll, I'll take it or leave it. No. Jesus says, this is why I came. This is why you exist. This is the mission of his followers. Move out and make disciples. But what does it mean to make disciples? What does it mean to make disciples? Let's start by asking the question, what is a disciple? What is a disciple? We throw these words around a lot, so I just want to talk a little bit about that. In the first century, a disciple did not enroll in a particular school. They enrolled with a particular teacher. Kind of like music instruction. My wife, Judy, studied piano at Seattle Pacific University. But she would describe it by saying, I studied piano with Marcel Mack. Marcel Mack was this instructor that happened to teach at Seattle Pacific University. And she can say she studied piano at Seattle Pacific University, but she would say I studied piano with Marcel Mack. Now, we are not followers of a set of principles or ideas. We're not followers of a set of beliefs or doctrines. We follow a person called Jesus Christ. We follow a person, Jesus Christ. A disciple is first 
Number one, a believer. A believer. One must believe in the teacher. One must believe that their credentials are solid. They must believe that, believe that who they say they are. They have credibility so that we will do what they tell us to do so that we can follow them. It's to trust or to place our trust in the person called to lead us, to teach us, to train us. To believe in Jesus, to be a disciple of Jesus means all that, much more, to place trust in, submit our heart, mind, emotions, and will. And as I've talked about the fact that when we use the word belief, saying we believe in Jesus, Hebrew thought connects belief and action. Belief was not just an intellectual assent to a set of truths or principles. Belief included the mind and the intellect, also the emotions and the passion, also included the will or obedience. Belief included action that's inseparable. So to believe in Jesus is a total absorption with the person of Jesus, trust, faith, and action. And we cannot believe in Jesus without taking action on that belief. So first of all, the disciple is a believer. Secondly, a disciple is, number two, a follower. One who follows after, one who imitates, one who does what they do. The actions become part of who we are. I shared not long ago about the, the four, levels of, four levels of learning. Those four levels are, first of all, unconscious incompetence. How many of you remember this? Okay. Yeah, you, I'm, I probably didn't do a good job of doing it. Though. Okay, unconscious incompetence basically means we don't know that we don't know. Okay, unconscious incompetence. You don't know, you don't know. Got that? Okay. Then there's conscious incompetence. We know that we don't know. Okay, everybody get that? Conscious incompetence. Then there's conscious competence. We know how, but we have to think about it. And then there's unconscious competence. We know it so well, we don't have to think about it. We just do it automatically. The illustration I gave was driving a stick shift. Automobile. Now you remember. Okay, I remember. The driving lesson. Here we go. If you have unconscious incompetence, you drive an automatic. You don't know there's a stick shift. Okay. You don't, even, you don't know that there's such a thing as a state. So it's un, if you were, yeah, unconscious incompetence. Conscious co incompetence means you begin to drive a stick shift, but you grind and you can't coordinate the clutch and everything. If you're on a hill, you, you roll backwards and stuff. So you're, you're conscious about it, but you're incompetent in doing it. Conscious competence means you can drive a stick shift, but you have to concentrate on every motion as you go through the gears, and you can't talk on the cell phone, drink coffee, or eat at the same time. Okay, that's... Conscious competence. Now, unconscious competence, you're so comfortable that driving a stick shift becomes part of your muscle memory, your character, it's automatic, you don't have to think about it, you could probably eat, drink, and everything, and talk on the phone at the same time as you're going through the gears. Not recommended, but you can do that. When the beginning of discipleship is unconscious incompetence. We don't know what we don't know, okay? We all start there, so don't feel bad if that's where you feel you are. We don't know what we don't know, okay? And then we have to think about it all the time. We learn what, this is what discipleship is, reading the word, it's praying, it's meditating. Don't get angry, be patient, love, the fruits of the spirit, put on the armor of God every day, etc. And And so we go through this mechanical process of I know that I don't know and I'm trying to learn how to, how to follow Jesus, how to be like Jesus. And a follower, a true follower, takes on the character of Jesus so much that there's no mechanical wooden set of rules or regulations. We become like Jesus. 
It becomes part of our nature. We don't always have to ask the question or wear the bracelet, what would Jesus do? We don't always have to, we come up to a situation, we don't have to ask what would Jesus do? We just do what Jesus would do. Because his character is so much a part of who we are. That's what a true follower, disciple, that is our goal, that we become just like Jesus, that our following is so aligned with him that we take on his character. And that's by the Holy Spirit that, that is dwelling inside of us. Followers of Jesus. A disciple of Jesus is thirdly a learner. A learner will study the life and works and words of Jesus. The goal is to learn everything we can about Jesus and be like Jesus. To help people believe in Jesus, follow Jesus, and learn about Jesus. That is our mission. That's the what of disciple. But how do we make disciples? How do we make disciples? I'm going to talk a little bit this morning about, about the process of disciple making. And then I'm going to show you a diagram called the angle scale. Some of you have seen it before, some of you haven't. But basically, if we're going to make disciples, we have to start with wherever people are at. And that means that we need to have relationships with pre-Christians. Have relationships with pre-Christians. How did God communicate that he loves people? He incarnated the message, Jesus sent a representative, a human being, Jesus, also God. And through Jesus, it's him who we learned the, who God was. In the first century, Jesus did this work and communication through his physical body. He was here on earth and he shared that. He revealed who God was. Now, then he went to heaven and he now does his work, his communication, building relationships to, to non-Christians, pre-Christians, spiritually seeking people through his body. Who is that? That's us. That's us. We are the body of Christ. So he does his work through us, his body. In you and God, you and me, we are his representative. People believe nothing else until we build a relationship with them. They have to believe in us before they believe in Jesus. It's relationships developing trust, and they all demonstrate God's love. We are called to develop relationships and have relationships and friendships with people who are non Christians, people who are pre-Christians, non-believers. So where do we do that? Now, let me just say something. Every one of us has a sphere of influence, relationships. The church here, we have a geographical area of influence. And, um, and I'm, I'm going to talk about something that has caused a little bit of consternation in the last, last month or so. so. Some of you have heard that one of our churches is planning to plant a campus uh, here in, uh, in Eau Claire. Uh, red cedar. Now, immediately people go, oh no, what's going to happen to our church? Nothing, I hope. Because their sphere of influence is going to be different. You know, what your, you know what our mission field is? It's not what they have, it's our mission field. Your mission field exists with the people that you have relationships with. Nobody else has that relationship. You have that relationship. So you have neighbors, you have friends. There are people that, that, that work on your car. You have people that do all kinds of things in your life. They, they're the checkout people at, at, at festival. Whatever it is, they, they are our sphere of influence. No one has that sphere of influence like you, friends and relatives. Most people, it's, it's 80 plus percent of people that come to faith in Jesus Christ. You know how they come? through friends and family. You have family, you have friends, you have... Nobody has that mission field except you. 
and Eau Claire Wesleyan Church because of that. We also have a geographical area of influence. We're right across the street from the high school. We have neighborhood, we're in a neighborhood. That is our sphere of influence. And you know what? I wish we had 10, 15 more churches, Wesleyan churches in town. We need churches because they're going to target, they're going to have spheres of influence that we don't have, and we're going to have spheres of influence that they don't have. And I just praise God that there's vision to expand the kingdom of God. Don't we don't compete with churches. We compete with the devil, just so you know. Okay? We're not in competition with other churches. We are here to build the kingdom. And your sphere of influence is totally and utterly unique. That is who you are called, who we as a church are called to engage in personal relationships so that we can share the gospel of Jesus Christ. So how do we make disciples? Build those relationships. Secondly, tell them about your faith. Now, Judy and I have a great chiropractor. His name is Dr. Rohde. He was back in the Seattle area. And as a family, we started going to Dr. Rohde after our daughters had a minor traffic accident. We went, and, and basically, Dr. Rohde used this method of chiropractic adjustment that worked really well for us. And if, if ever, I ever had back pain, I'd go to Dr. Rohde. We can't fly to Seattle, but we're going to try to do something with Judy's back pain. But, so if somebody else has back pain or they had issues with something, what would I do? I would tell them about Dr. Rohde. Dr. Rohde. I'd say, I have tremendous faith in Dr. Rohde's ability to fix your pain, to solve chronic problems through his treatment. So I'd tell them. Well, the question is, what is your story? Hey, I had this problem in my life with alcohol or drugs or depression. I was addicted to pornography. Problems in marriage or finances. And Dr. Jesus fixed it. Dr. Jesus found the answers. He was the answer to my problems. He fixed my brokenness, my pain. He healed my marriage. We tell them. If Jesus didn't make any difference in your life, you have nothing to say. But I know he's made a difference in your life. And he continues to make a difference in your life. As you, as you built bridges with these people, tell them about Dr. Jesus. Tell them about Jesus. This is, and it comes up, now, you can't tell them just cold turkey. You can't just go up to somebody on the street and say, hey, um, do you know Jesus? They go, I don't know you, who are you? But you know somebody and you're walking with them through a, a difficult family crisis or some kind of job situation and and they've watched you, and they're going to say, I don't know how to get through this. How did you do it? And you say, well, let me tell you about Dr. Jesus. Let me tell you who helped me. Let me tell you about the transformation I've had. It's that faith transformation that we share with people. And it's your Nobody has that story except you. You have a unique story to tell. That is our sphere of influence, building bridges to pre-Christians, to non-believers, sharing our faith. You know, people today have great curiosity about spiritual things. They have issues with the church, okay? They, they have these preconceived ideas about the church and different things. They may have had a bad experience with the church, but we're talking about your relationship with them. Tell them about your faith. And then how to make disciples, number three, help them establish a relationship with Jesus. Now, the job of leadership of the church is to help equip you so that you have the tools necessary to share your faith, but mostly it's about your story and your journey of faith. 
And number four, follow through. Help people learn about God and the Bible. When it comes to faith in Jesus, he called it being born again. And new believers are born again and likened to newborn babies. Babies need a lot of help. We never look at a newborn baby and say, look at him, he can't do anything. He just eats and sleeps, lays around, fills his diapers. He must be worthless. No. An abandoned baby may survive for a few hours, but soon will die without proper care. Babies require parenting, feeding, diapering, learning how to walk, talk, run, to become a responsible member of society. And then there's training. And we go on and on about training. Read the Bible, pray, spiritual disciplines. It's head, heart, and hand. So let's look at principles of making discipleship. Discipleship is a process. Now, I want to talk about the angle scale for a minute. See if we can get that up. Okay? This describes the journey of faith. Okay? Okay, I wish it was a little bit different, but that's okay. It's, go along the left side. Um, we talked about this as, as a leadership team to talk about what is our mission. Everybody in their journey of faith is f- between minus five and plus four. Okay, and let me talk about that. Minus five means they have no awareness of a supreme being. Now, most people in America have a, an awareness that there's a God somewhere, okay? But there are people that have no awareness of a supreme being, and so you can't talk about Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life until they believe that maybe there is a God, okay? Then there are those that have an awareness of a supreme being, minus four, they may be there. Or minus three, an awareness and a positive attitude toward the gospel. In other words, they understand the implications of the gospel. Everybody is going to be somewhere along this criteria and along this, this journey if they're a pre-Christian or not a believer yet. And so during this time, our job in a relationship is to discover where they're at. Talk to them. Get to know them. Find out. So, so what, are, what, are your, uh, what do you believe about spiritual things? Or um, what's your philosophy of life? Why do, you, why do you live? What's your purpose? You know, you can ask all kinds of questions. And you can find out where they're at spiritually. And our, our job making disciples, it's a process. We're trying to help them move from minus five all the way to plus four. Minus two is a decision to act and not minus one, repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. And so we, our, our responsibility is to build relationships with people, discover where they are in this angle scale and help them relationally move and informationally move down the scale to new creation. We get to new creation, then bring them into the church, the body of Christ, the incorporation, the conceptual and behavioral growth, then develop a solid relationship with God, and then reproduction, which is reproducing Jesus' life in others. And then it cycles back. Does this make sense? Okay. We have in our statement, in our bulletin, this is where this came from. Our mission statement. Everybody, Everybody pull it out. It's not on the PowerPoint. Eau Claire Wesleyan Church exists to navigate life together in knowing God, representing him well through loving relationships, there's relationships, relevant conversations that encourage people, whether skeptic, seeking, or already in relationship with Jesus, into becoming devoted, spirit-filled followers of Jesus. That's the angle scale right there. That is what our mission is in helping people become disciples and followers of Jesus. So number two, disciple-making has a beginning but no ending. Growth never ends. It continues all the time. 
Number three, discipleship requires risk and commitment. It requires us to get involved in other people's lives. And number four, discipleship takes time. We say, I can't do that. A lot of people say, I can't do that. A lot of people are very intimidated. If you're not an extrovert, you're an introvert, or you don't have comfort, you're not comfortable dealing with people you don't know, or as you're building relationships, well, you know what? All of us are powerless to make a change or difference. That's why Jesus said, his last words are, I, Jesus, will support you all the way. Relax and enjoy. This is number three. I, Jesus, will support you all the way. Relax. He says, surely I'm with you always. Now, there are two parts of this promise. First of all, the, the presence of God. Now, when you're facing a huge challenge or experience a difficult time in your life, who is it you want by your side? A person of strength you can trust and talk to. God doesn't say, here's your mission, good luck. He says, I'm with you every step of the way. That's why God can take bipolar Christians, worship doubters, and change the world. His presence. Secondly, there's the power of God. It's the power of God. Now, I, have a, I have a diagram here. Let's see if we can get it up about water. Now, at 80 degrees, starting at the bottom, 80 degrees um, is about the, the, the temperature of a swimming pool, okay, swimming pool. Um, you heat it up to 105 degrees, that's about the temperature of a hot tub. 150 degrees is a latte and 180 degrees extra hot latte. So some of you like it extra hot, that's fine. But there's a boiling point where water transforms and gives power. That boiling point is 212 degrees. And it's up to God by his Holy Spirit to take us, this raw instrument, this worshiping, doubting follower of Jesus, and heat us up to 212 degrees to transform us. God heats us up by his power. We're transformed. Then his power works through us. Steam powers electric turbines for electricity. Steam powers ships. And we, too, need to be empowered by the Holy Spirit of God in order to make a difference. And Jesus said, I will power you. I will power you. In Acts 1.8, and we're going to look at Acts in the fall, it says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. That's another sermon. I, Jesus, am in charge around here, so move out, obey me, make disciples. I, Jesus, will support you all the way. Relax and enjoy his last words. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your Holy Spirit is available to each one of us. And I pray that, that you would empower us by your Holy Spirit. Father, that you would envision us to see our mission. And Father, that we would look around ourselves and see who is it in my life that needs Jesus. And Father, that you would raise us up as a body of believers that makes a difference. We take for granted this whole phrase, make disciples. I pray that you, God, would make it become a reality, a lifestyle, as we become more like Jesus all the time. And we thank you. 
In Jesus' name, amen.